I'm excited to be speaking to you this morning on Epiphany Sunday uh, about Epiphany. And um, it's an exciting message to bring to you because I think it's a really timely message, almost like God planned it that way. Um, But we're going to read from the Bible first because it seems like a good thing to do. So we're going to read from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, if you want to look it up. So Matthew 2, 1 to 12, the last Christmas reading of the season. It's about the Magi visiting the Messiah. It says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So, Epiphany... What does epiphany mean to you? Epiphany is one of those things that means a lot of different things depending on who you are and depending on what tradition you come from. In the Western churches, epiphany is the celebration of the manifestation, epiphany meaning manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles, represented by the Magi. In Eastern churches, they actually celebrate Christ's baptism by John the Baptist. When I was a child, I don't know about you, but Epiphany was the day you took down the Christmas decorations. That's all I understood it as. Um, I didn't know there was anything else. Some new Christians or some Christians from other denominations might not mark Epiphany at all. I grew up in a Baptist church, and we knew that Epiphany was a thing, but we never really marked it. We didn't know what it was about. And the dictionary, good old dictionary, defines Epiphany as a moment of sudden insight or understanding. A moment of sudden insight or understanding. Sometimes speaking or being asked to speak on a, on a thing that has many different meanings, many different interpretations can be a little bit intimidating, can make you kind of nervous. When I was preparing, I was reminded of that sensation back in the day, some of you will remember this, not all headphones were wireless. And uh, you would put your headphones in your pocket and they would get tangled up after about 10 seconds, inexplicably. You put them in, untangled, you take them out and they're tangled so quickly. I I had that sensation of untangling headphones as I was researching and and praying and studying for for the message. Just kind of untangling the different meanings and the different interpretations, except these headphones have been in your pocket for a few hundred years. But that's also really exciting because I think when there isn't like a, a thing you must, absolutely must say about something, like this is the one defining absolutely agreed upon by everyone meaning, it leaves space for the Holy Spirit. It leaves space for God to speak to us. So I'm just going to pray really quick before we get really into it that the Holy Spirit 
might speak to us. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for Epiphany, and we thank you for the varied meanings. We thank you that you're in this place by your Spirit. And we really just ask that you would intercede now, that you would soften our hearts and open our minds to hear from you, that anything that I say that is of value and from you might speak to us, and anything that isn't would just fade away. We welcome you by your Spirit into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, really, where we're going to be today, where we're going to be sitting, is in this juxtaposition, in this contrast between epiphany, meaning the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles, the time that Jesus appears to all people in the world, and this modern usage being a moment of sudden insight and realization and understanding. So, Let's take a moment to think about modern interpretation. Where do you have your epiphanies? Does anyone ever have an epiphany? Uh, we had some friends over on New Year's Day, and we were having some food and having some other nice time, and I was playing with Lego, because I always do, and, um, and I needed the toilet, as you do. And I was sitting on the toilet, and I was thinking about preaching to you all this morning. Isn't that a wonderful-ish image that I've just put in your head? I'm sorry, I apologize. I was sitting on the loo, thinking about preaching about epiphany, thinking about my thoughts that I've been thinking about, and I had an epiphany. Isn't that great? What are the chances? Um, I had an epiphany, and the structure of the message just came to me. Uh, and I was so excited and relieved. Uh, in <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Where do you have your epiphanies? Some people have them on a walk, probably a more savory story. I could have just said I was on a walk, but that would have been a lie, and God is watching. Um, some people have them at the gym. Some people have them, uh, I don't know. Does anyone have epiphanies in certain places? Think about your epiphanies where you have them. In the shower, that's a good one, yeah. Anytime you kind of stop and do nothing, right? There's space for God to speak to you, or just to realize things you might not have realized before. And that's exciting. Epiphanies sometimes feel like a miracle, don't they? And sometimes they are miraculous. They are from God. I certainly feel like God spoke to me about what to say to you this morning. And therefore, it makes sense that epiphany that we have today, this kind of miraculous, sudden, out-of-nowhere understanding, is also the epiphany of Jesus, this miraculous manifestation of God as a child. That makes sense. But there is one difference, and it's that difference I really want to sit in this morning, and that's that idea of the time. This quick manifestation is understanding, and actually the manifestation of Jesus as a journey, that as a culmination of many, many years. So let's take a look at the Magi's journey. Uh, the Magi's journey, um, where did they come from? Well, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, as we just read, says they came from the east, from the east, the Greek more literally means from the rising, impl implying from the rising of the sun. Now, if we look at the east back in the day, pretty much the entire east of Judea and Syria was the Parthian Empire, Persia. The dominant religion of the Parthian Empire was Zoroastrianism, which have a priestly class called the Magos. So it makes sense, potentially, that they came from the Parthian Empire, the Magi. We don't know. It doesn't say that in the Bible. It just says they came from the east. But we can maybe take a bit of a leap if we're going to try and get somewhere with this. So if they did come from the Parthian Empire, 
what's modern-day Iran. They would have come from over a 1,000 miles, 1,083 miles in today's money, but I imagine the journey would have been a little bit different back then. Maybe the path was different. How would they have traveled? How long would it have taken? And they probably would have traveled by caravan, not the ones we use, a caravan of camels. They probably would have traveled in a group with an entourage. Some Christian traditions actually think that there were 12 magi. Others think that there were three because of the three gifts. We don't know how many there are. The Bible doesn't say how many magi there were. Um, but a camel caravan, if they did travel in a camel caravan, can travel about 80 miles a day. So at least two weeks, potentially longer, it would have taken for the Magi to come to Jesus. And obviously, that's all just speculation. Many people think it was much longer. Many people think it was almost two years, potentially, especially because in verse 11, it says the Magi came to the house where the child Jesus was, rather than the manger where the infant baby Jesus was. And also in verse 16, we read that Herod ordered all children under the age of two to be killed in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. So it makes sense that potentially it could be longer. But regardless of the exact time or distance, I think it's fair to say, because we don't know for sure, but it probably would have been a fairly long and challenging journey. It probably wouldn't have been the Magi sitting on the toilet and suddenly being revealed that Jesus was Lord and been born in Bethlehem. It was a longer one. And of course, the Magi's journey of a thousand miles is the accumulation of thousands of years of history, isn't it? It's the entire biblical narrative that leads up to Jesus' birth. From creation to flood to Noah, through ten generations to Abraham, Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, Jacob becoming Israel, slavery in Egypt, wandering in the wilderness through the time of the judges, through the kings, through the Davidic line, to Babylon, the exile in Babylon, to the rebuilding of the walls in Nehemiah, all the way up to the birth of Jesus. It's a journey of a thousand miles after a journey of thousands of years of history that leads to the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. Not something that is a moment of sudden insight or understanding. So I think that's the tension we find ourselves in today, and that's kind of the tension I want to explore briefly with you this morning. We live in a world that glamorizes attainment. I know you've heard this in a thousand preaches already, but it really does glamorize the attainment of things while simultaneously minimizing the effort that it takes to get them, doesn't it? Especially if you have social media or anything like that. I know some of you are really well behaved and you just, you completely don't partake in social media. And I respect that. I really do. I'm tempted myself. But we are shown images of wealth, of beauty, of success in work, of success in life, of success in family. But we're very seldomly shown the amount of time it takes, even a fraction of the time it takes to attain those things. We want to see the finished product. We're a fast, I've written this down, we're a fast-paced, results-driven people who want things our way and as quickly as possible. We want things our way and as quickly as possible. When I'm not here at the church, which is not very often, um, some of you know I'm a circus acrobat by profession, which is weird, I know. Um, 
and I teach circus acrobatics at the National Center for Circus Arts in Shoreditch, and I teach physical skills and physical fitness and all that kind of stuff. And people come, and there's a, a huge range of people, but some of them come expecting fast results. Okay, they're going to hang upside down from a rope, their whole body in basically a splits position, upside down, and they're like, why can't I do this? It's been four weeks. I'm like, you have to be patient with yourself. When you came in, you couldn't even hold on to the rope without your hands feeling like they're going to fall off. You can't expect to do the splits upside down within four weeks. You have to be patient as a journey. So, we have to be careful, I think, in this world, in this life, and it's I'm speaking to myself as much to anyone else, that we don't mirror this way of thinking in our lives. Like this way of thinking in our lives is not usually very helpful, but it's especially important we don't mirror it in our walk with God. My preference, our preference, would be that everything comes as an epiphany, a moment of sudden realization, that all the things that I want to do in my own life, that all the things that I'd love God to do in my heart would just boom. But that's not always the case. We know and we believe that people are healed instantly, that people can be healed physically, emotionally, from challenges in their past. And we pray for those things and we believe those things and those things do happen and we've seen those things happen here. I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm not saying that God doesn't work instantly because he does. And that's amazing. We praise God for that. But often things are with us our whole lives. Often we struggle with the same things day after day. But we also know that the Magi's journey would have been long and hard, and we know that sometimes walking with God can be challenging. It doesn't always happen instantly like an epiphany. So, I read an article about how to survive in the desert. It was pretty interesting, actually. I'm a bit of a nerd for that kind of stuff. When I've been a youth worker or involved in youth work for nearly 10, well, actually more than 10 years now, I forgot how old I was. Um, and when I was in Scotland, I used to run a survival wildernessy type weekend for young people. And they would learn how to make fire and make shelters and filter water. It was great. So I love nerding out about all that stuff. And I thought that I might get in trouble, although Phil's away. Phil's our, Phil's our rector, in case you don't know. Uh, if I didn't have three points in my sermon. Uh, so it's 2020. Let's start with the three point. And they're short points, don't worry. It's not like three 20-minute points. So I read this article about surviving in the desert, and uh, number one is planning everything. Number one, survive in the desert, plan everything. The article says, don't just go off wandering aimlessly, or you're more likely going to end up in the middle of nowhere. Plan when and where you're going to and how you're going to get there and back, where you're going to be staying, and do so in meticulous detail. Part of the attraction of adventuring is not having a plan, but the desert really isn't a place you want to get lost news for you all. The Magi knew their destination. They were going to see a king, and they knew how to get there. They were following a star. And I think, as Natasha and Mark encouraged us this morning, it's important to set a destination with God. We're on a journey. Where do you want to go with God this year? 2020. Where do you want to go? Ooh, the new decade. This next 10 years, where do you want to go with God? Maybe you don't know where you want to go with God. Well, uh, ask him, pursue that, 
Some of you will say to me, oh, I've been asking God where I want to go for years. I've never had a clear message. Well, I can encourage you with this at least. We know for a fact God wants you to go closer to Him, closer to Him, and to be more like His Son. So if you don't have a destination, if you don't have the nitty-gritty, if you're not a aims and a KPI, key performance indicators kind of person, at least know that God wants you to be closer to Him and to know that He loves you and to be more like His Son. And uh, I want to read from the Bible. It's Philippians 3, 13 to 14, very well-known passage. And it says this, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Where do you want to be with God this year, over the next 10 years? Personally, in your relationships with others, in the practical nitty-gritty of your life, God cares about those things. Where do you want to be with Him? How do we survive in the desert? Number two, take the right survival gear. Hopefully you won't need it, but take some survival gear with you just in case. You'll need a first aid kit, a knife or multi-tool, water purification tablets, compass, you can't rely on GPS in the desert, some kind of scarf in case of storms, sandstorms, something to start a fire, and some form of lighting, such as a head torch or lantern. I don't know, but to me that seems like not enough. If I was lost in a desert, I'd want a lot more. Um, it doesn't even mention water. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> water purification tablets, and some water, hopefully. Um, so where in the Bible are we going to find a list of survival gear? I'm sure some of you are way, way ahead of me. Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God. Chapter 6, verse 13 to 18. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So, do you have the survival gear you need? Do you have what you need? Um, the armor of God, as you know, is an amazing passage. Extremely uh, dense and beautiful. So I'm not going to start preaching on it. <laughs> uh, people preach on a whole series on just that one passage. But I would really encourage you as part of your worship today as we respond to God afterwards or in your own quiet time, go through that passage. I'm going to challenge myself to go through that passage and check if I have this list of essential survival gear. The Bible says that we need those things. What do those things mean to me? Do I understand what those things mean to me? What does the breastplate of righteousness mean in my life? Is that this kind of ephemeral, oh, I know there's some God words in there, some Christianese, but I don't know exactly what it means for me in practical sense. I encourage you, go away. Even if you've done that loads of times, even if it's such a familiar passage to you, I encourage you to check what it means. Okay. Third and final point. What? So exciting. 
what else do we need to survive in the desert? Actually, there was like 20 points, so <laughs> you're lucky. Um, number three, tell people where you're going. Tell people where you're going. Uh, the, the actual article says this. Once you've made your plans, I won't do the silly voice, make sure people know about them. Tell them where, you're pla where you plan to be and when so that they can keep track of you and where you should be. Should you not turn up, then someone can start to do something about it. You won't be able to rely on GPS or mobile phone signal in a desert, so don't presume you'll just be able to call someone if you get lost. I just want to read out the first sentence of that again, because it could be straight out of the Bible. Once you've made your plans, make sure people know about them. Tell them where you plan to be and when, so that they can keep track of where you should be. Isn't that great? Tell people. Ecclesiastes, Old Testament, chapter 4, 9 to 12. I, I'm just bringing out all the hits today, which is why I don't mind throwing lots of scripture at you, because you'll know these ones. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And then another, James 5. Again, really well-known one, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has a great power and it is working as it is working. Are you on this journey? Are you in a caravan with others? Are you traveling together? Um, you may be. You may feel a centered part of SPS, and that's amazing. We love our church family. We are journeying together. Um, and if you don't feel like you're part of a caravan, you are very welcome to join ours. We love to have you. But I think there's more than that, isn't there? Because I would love to say that I know every single person in this room, which I don't, that would be a lie. And I'd love to say I know how to encourage every one of you. And I'd love to say I know what's going on with every one of you. And I'd love to be able to say that I know exactly how to pray for every one of you, but that is not true. We need smaller groups. We need to be plugged into connect groups. We need to be plugged into discipleship. We need to be praying for each other. We need to be in the nitty-gritty detail of each other's lives. We need to be praying, bringing each other up, confessing our sins, speaking about our struggles. It's just too hard if we don't do those things. It's just too hard. So, are you journeying with others? Do you have the support? Are you supporting others? Don't go alone. So there we are, three points. Planning is everything. Where are you going this year? With God, in your life, in all the elements. Taking the right survival gear. We have everything we need. God has given us all that we need. I encourage you to read Ephesians 6, the armor of God, and pick it apart. Do you have what you need? And tell people where you're going. If you've made a plan, if you want to get somewhere with God, Tell your friends. Tell people who you, you care about. And if you don't have those relationships and you want to build them, speak to us. Speak to Mark, especially if you want to get plugged into a small group or fill out one of these cards. As we think about committing to the continued challenge of the journey of the epiphany, 
It's a joyful challenge because we know the destination is God and to be with Him. But I think there's two challenges here, and this is where we're finishing. I think there's a challenge for those of us who maybe don't know God or who have only just recently come to know God or who have fallen away or out of the habit of spending time with God. And that's that the Epiphany says to us that God traveled thousands of years through history and thousands of miles to deliver a love letter to us. Are you going to read it? Because it's here, and if you don't have one, you can take one away. I'll get in trouble for saying that. And for those of us who are continuing to journey with God, the Epiphany, I think, says to us, will you commit to journeying like the Magi did? Perhaps some areas of your walk with God have been easy and instantaneous, and we praise God for that. But others are hard and challenging. Don't forget where you're going towards a loving Father that longs to make you more like His Son. Don't forget to take, you, take what you need. God has given us everything we need. And don't forget to tell others where you're going and not to go alone. Pray with me, please. Lord, we just thank you so much for this morning, and we thank you that you're in this place. And we thank you that I stand here and we sit here only by your grace. We thank you that we do not go alone, that you give us everything we need, that you've given us more than we could hope or imagine, abundantly more, and that you call us into a life of abundance. Lord, we just pray that we would use this time at the start of the year where everything seems so uh, possible to spend time with you and seek what you would have us do, where you would have us go, who you would have us love, and, and where you would have us invest our time. Furthermore, that we would really draw in close to you and commit to spending time with you because without you, our most righteous acts are just filthy rags. And Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for these wonderful people sitting next to us, these people that you love so much more than we could ever imagine or understand. Thank you that we get to journey together and be together. Pray for an increased closeness, an increased fellowship, a deeper relationship with our friends and new friendships in this place and in our communities and our workplaces. We thank you that we don't go it alone, not only by your spirit, but also by those who are with us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.